0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi.
1: This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Meet Johnson. Reckitt Meet Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive nfamil portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meetjohnson.com. This is The Incubator. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphna, you're back.
0: I'm back. <laughs> well, we were still doing some podcasts, you know. Here,
1: no, at the but end. you're back.
0: I'm back. I'm back. I'm back, but but I'm not. I'm on vacation right now.
1: <laughs> but I was talking for the purposes of the podcast. <laughs> like you are. You are now. Um, we have your your full. I'm um, all in.
0: Podcast. You know.
1: How was that test? Oh.
0: You know, you never know, right? Just mm-hmm. do the best you can, and we see what's what when the scores all come out. <laughs> that's what I know. When I feel I... like everybody's like a little stressed out about it. You know, I think that's normal.
1: I think what people tend to forget is that if you come came out of this test and you're the only one who said, yeah, that,
0: uh,
2: right.
1: that was a tough one. And everybody else says, oh, that was walk in the park. Yeah, you should be concerned. <laughs> but when you start realizing everybody has that feel feeling right. of like, oh, terrible. <laughs> um, I think it's
0: hard because, <clears throat> you know, there's this like scaled score that like, what does that even yeah. mean? You know? So it's yeah. hard to, it's hard to, See where you landed because you don't know what the goals are. So, I, you know, doctors are not very, we're not great with uncertainty, even though we have to do it all the time.
1: No, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> when I was in college, I didn't do so well with scaled scores because I used to get like the questions everybody got wrong. I used to get them all right and they got dropped. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they dropped. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and the questions and the questions that were gimmies, I used to overcomplicate life for myself and I would get them wrong. And now I was like in this predicament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um anyway we have uh journal club is back um Mm -hmm. in case you are confused about our new schedule it's not something crazy schedule (laughs) no we uh are going to do we have two weeks uh where we're going to do journal club back to back uh and then we'll resume our new our usual alternating journal club interview schedule um and yeah thank you for everybody who downloaded the episode last week with Mm -hmm. dr richard poland that was that was a pretty cool interview
0: yeah, very it was a so popular interview to too, which is cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Although all his former fellows came mm-hmm. uh, came out and drove up.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: <laughs> um yeah. So without further ado, should we start?
0: Yeah, you go first.
1: Okay, so then then we have to begin. You know we when we do
0: when we do board review questions, I go first every time, so you go first.
1: That's yeah. fine. So so today, it's an easy one. I mean, today we have the hydrocortisone paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In case you are living under a rock and haven't heard of this paper coming out, it is called Hydrocortisone to Improve Survival Without Boroncopulmonary Dysplasia. First author is Christy Waterberg. It is from the Neonatal Research Network. So before we begin, we should tell people that Mm -hmm. our come upcoming interview so not next week but the following week is with christy waterberg um we've we've managed to record an episode with her and we thought it was so timely that this paper came out and that we would bring her on the show she's such a fascinating individual and for the people who don't know her you are practicing neonatology based on a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. that this lady has published (laughs) so she was so humble it was amazing anyway so um and we asked her some questions about this paper that will we'll get her opinion throughout this, this episode. So that's kind of cool. So this paper obviously looks at hydrocortisone, right? So hydrocortisone has a long history of wanting to be used for reducing inflammation, especially in the context of bronchopulmonary dysplasia, it's, and it's more specifically in trying to even prevent bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Hydrocortisone is is notorious for um, having both mineral and glucocorticoid um, Properties um, and compared to dexamethasone in the animal animal studies, it, it had much less apoptotic effect, um, and so um, and so that's 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 what originally led uh, investigators to look at this medication. There's a lot of data that came out, and we talked to Dr. Waterberg about that on our upcoming show, where um, since the nineteen, the late 1990s, in 1999, we started having papers looking at the use of hydrocortisone and its effect on bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Um, this is what those early studies uncovered, this, this peculiar association between PDA treatment and hydrocortisone administration that led to spontaneous perforation, but And and more recently, with the publication of the Premiloc trial in the Lancet by the French group, um, there's been a big, big debate in the community whether we should be using prophylactic hydrocortisone in very small babies at risk of developing BPD to prevent the development of BPD. So this trial specifically uh, by the research network was undertaken to determine the efficacy of hydrocortisone in increasing survival without BPD and its long-term safety, assessing that through neurodevelopmental outcome between twenty-two and 26 months uh, adjusted for prematurity. So this was a double-masked placebo-controlled randomized trial. This was done by the Neonatal Research Network in 19 US academic centers. They uh, collected um, data from 2011 to 2018, and then the follow-up for the neurodevelopment was between 2013 and and 2020. So the infants that were eligible were um, included in the study if they were um, 14 to 28 days postnatal age, and if they had an estimated gestational age at birth of less than 30 weeks, they had to be born or admitted in a neonatal research network site at no more than 72 hours of postnatal age, and they had to have been on mechanical ventilation through an endotracheal tube for at least seven days and were receiving mechanical ventilation through that ET tube at trial entry. Obviously, some of the exclusion criteria included major congenital anomalies, um, any baby that decisions were made to limit intensive life support, um, indomethacin or ibuprofen treatment within 48 hours of trial entry, obviously dating back to these early 2000 studies, trying to prevent uh, SIPs, and uh, previous administration of steroids for treatment or prevention of BPD. So um, the intervention were either receiving a saline placebo or hydrocortisone sodium succinate. The dose uh, basically was a tapering course that started on day one and was tapered over the course of 10 days. Started off at four milligrams per kilo per day for two days, two milligrams per kilo per day for three days, one milligram per kilo per day for three days and 0.5 per kilo per day for two days on the basis of anti-inflammatory dosing schedule, which is another article that Dr. Waterberg uh, published. Mm-hmm. So again, if you are giving hydrocortisone and you're using one milligram per kilo Q8, right, you are using her her, her study published mm-hmm. in 2017, I believe. Um, in terms of um, extubation, that was very interesting. I don't know if, um, if you saw that, Daphna, but um, the decision to extubate was left to the discretion of the attending. However, an extubation attempt was required within 72 hours after starting hydrocortisone or placebo within 24 hours after the following criteria had been met. So they had extubation criteria Mm -hmm. and the clinician was free to do it or not to do it, but they had to attempt it at least within that that three-day period. The extubation criteria were an FiO2 of 40% or less to maintain a saturation of 88%, a mean airway pressure of eight or less, and a hemodynamically stable condition in the opinion of the clinical team. Now, a successful extubation was defined as remaining extubated for at least a week, including at least three days after the last dose of hydrocortisone or placebo. The outcomes of these of this uh, of this study were um, pretty much expected. The primary outcome included both efficacy and safety measures. The efficacy outcome was the improvement in survival without physiologically defined moderate or severe BPD uh, measured at 36 weeks post-menstrual uh, age. Um, And and obviously, if if you're not familiar, the the physiologic definition here is explained as the use um, of supplemental oxygen, positive pressure ventilation, or both to maintain an oxygen saturation more than 90%. And then they did this ambient air challenge uh, for infants estimated to be receiving an FiO2 of less than 0.3. So if you're on 30% or less by nasal cannula, they tried to wean you down to room air. The safety outcome was survival without moderate or severe neurodevelopmental impairment at 22 to 26 months corrected age. And for that, they used a pretty standard, um, Bailey, uh, three measurements and, and, and CP stuff that, that the Neural Research Network has used in the past. So there's nothing really earth shattering there. All, all very solid stuff. Secondary outcomes were very interesting. Um, Growth measures after uh, extremely birth was one of the secondary outcomes. Successful extubation was a secondary outcome. Um, The use of open-label dexamethasone was a secondary outcome. And the Mm -hmm. respiratory status at 40 weeks um, was a secondary outcome. The use of hydrocortisone after the treatment period was considered a violation of protocol. So if anybody had to receive hydrocortisone, I think they, they they were taken out of the trial. The sample size was calculated to be 800 infants um, for 80% power to detect an increase in survival without moderate or severe BPD by 10 percentage points from a baseline of 35% or less. And Dr. Waterbrook talked to us about that, that we, mm-hmm. we in neonatology, the expectation is pretty high and mm-hmm. it makes the work that we have to do to get these studies done much harder.
0: Yeah, harder. Yeah.
1: So Let's talk about the results. So The mean birth weight of these infants were 715 grams, and the mean gestational age was about 24.9 weeks. The outcome of survival without moderate or severe BPD was known for all the enrolled infants, and for the neurodevelopmental follow-up, they had 91% uh, retention rate. The primary outcome, at 36 weeks um, of postmenstrual age, 16.6% of the babies in the hydrocortisone group were alive without moderate or severe BPD compared to 13.2% in the placebo group. So, better, but not statistically significant. Mm -hmm. Uh, The confidence interval ranged from 0.93 to 1.74. The results for the component of the primary outcome were similar in the two groups, as was the severity of bronchopulmonary dysplasia and survivor. At 22 to 26 months of corrected age, survival without moderate or severe neurodevelopmental impairment occurred in 36.9% in the hydrocortisone group compared to 37% in the placebo group. Um, So slightly worse in in hydrocortisone, but again, not different statistically. Uh, 95% confidence interval was 0.81 to 1.18. So from the primary end outcome, basically, no no real difference. Now, the secondary outcomes were interesting. So more infants in the hydrocortisone group were successfully extubated than in the placebo groups. Uh, So 44.7% in the hydrocortisone group were successfully extubated compared to 33.6% in the placebo group. The hydrocortisone group had fewer days of mechanical ventilation than the placebo group before 36 weeks of postmenstrual age. The open-label use of dexamethasone was administered to Mm 39.7% of the infants in the uh, hydrocortisone group and 42.1% in the placebo group. So they were less likely to get another round of steroids. Um, And then in terms of adverse events, um... The main thing that's mentioned is hypertension. Uh, the babies who were on hydrocortisone required more treatment for uh, self for for a short while d- for hypertension, but no infant was discharged receiving anti-hypertensive meds. And when you look, so the, the the interesting thing about this study, obviously, is that if you look at Table three, which are all the in-hospital outcomes, hydrocortisone does pretty well, but it just never reaches that statistically significant result that uh, we were we were hoping for. And even when it comes to the the efficacy, um, the numbers tend towards the hydrocortisone, but but never in a significant uh, manner. So, yeah, um, Daphna, wh- what were your thoughts on the hydrocortisone paper?
0: Yeah, I think you hit a lot of the big points. Which there were still a lot of signals and trends in the in the data that you know I I don't think we can uh, totally ignore, and I, and I think that's the big question right like I think people were hoping we would either lay or lay hydrocortisone to rest one way or another um, but I'm I'm not sure we could do that yet um, I, this may have answered this specific question um, but I, I I wonder as we learn more and we see more um, studies on um, the corticosteroids and the different types of steroids that will get more information about who will respond better to one thing or another um, for we talked to dr. Waterberg about this um, that um, probably there are different phenotypes uh, for babies that will respond and babies that won't and I just don't I just don't know that we have all the information yet So um, some things I super liked about the paper, I told this to Dr. Waterberg. I think her work is so easy to read. Um, Some of the papers we review are actually quite hard to read. Um, So I really appreciated um, that uh, they put in the effort that, you know, you really knew what the study design looked like. You really knew um, what the plan was. You really um, got a lot of details. And it was a long study. So I'm always impressed by these mult big trial, right, 19 big U.S. centers, um, high-volume centers um, over the course of seven years with over 90% uh, follow-up, which is really, really cool. Because that was part of the question, too, is what is the developmental follow-up? um, with the use of steroids. So I think that is another piece of the puzzle that if you're going to use hydrocortisone, um, that the developmental outcomes weren't different either. And, you know, I mean, we do know that the babies got extubated sooner, so it it didn't make a difference about BPD, but we have to talk about what is, what is the cost of staying intubated even without, you know, separate, um, from, from BPD. So right. I I think there's still there's, there's, work to be done, I guess. That's my
1: point. Yeah. So we we did um we did ask a lot of these questions to Dr. Waterberg. I think there's we had an interesting discussion as to how people are going to view this data. Mm-hmm. I think many people are gonna look at these secondary outcomes and be very enthusiastic. Um but I wanted to share let's let's actually bring in Dr. Waterberg herself to answer the question whether are we moving towards, like, we're, we're searching for these silver bullets. And there's an mm-hmm. editorial in mm-hmm. the New England Journal about, like, is this, a, the was hydrocortisone supposed to be the silver bullet? And I think what we've learned from neonatology is that there's not a single drug that's going to fix a big disease. Right. It's mostly going to be risk assessment, Bayesian mm-hmm. approach. And let's see what Dr. Waterberg had to say about that. Do you think we're going to end up with a risk stratification where that is, for example would be an important factor the degree of inflammation soon after birth will be a big factor and based on this risk stratification then we will decide whether to use or not hydrocortisone
2: i think so i think people are already trying to do that we're going to present an abstract at this uh, upcoming meeting talking about you know is there a differential effect based on the baseline risk mm-hmm. um that kind of stuff i i'm certain that that will be true. The, the problem is that when you get down to 23, 24, even 22-weekers, the risk for developing chronic lung disease is almost unimaginably high. Um, you know, if you start out being intubated, it, it's sort of, you'd be surprised if they don't end up with some kind of oxygen requirement at 36 weeks or more. Mm-hmm.
1: And going back to some of the, of the, of the, of the secondary findings that you've mentioned, especially shorter invasive ventilation, earlier extubation, do you think that mm-hmm. there, there's going to be a need to study these outcomes as primary outcomes in, in future studies? Or do you think that there's enough data uh, right now to, to use at least hydrocortisone, maybe not as, a, as, a, as an agent to reduce survival, uh, as an agent to reduce BPD, but maybe to, to have these uh, outcomes of less time on the vents and, and earlier extubation?
2: I think I think people will will put their own imprint on it. I think some people will say I want to do this to get that baby off the ventilator. I think it's worth it. And we've shown that it doesn't have any adverse neurodevelopmental or growth outcomes at least at two years. We are following these babies to five to six years in a long term outcome, and we're doing pulmonary um, pulmonary function outcomes in a subset of babies at, at certain centers that have that capability. So we're going to be able to say more about that school age outcome, you know, in a, in a couple of years. Nice. But I think everybody's just going to put their own take on it, depending on what they're actually what their bi- bias is and their background is.
1: I'm super excited that um, we're starting to think about the problem in 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 with through risk stratification, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I mean, again, stay tuned for 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 the rest of her interview. It was a lot of fun.
0: I also okay, think enough anytime enough. we're studying, sorry to to be you know not no, be no, done with this, but <laughs> every time we're talking about. Um, Anything to do with pharmacology or medications, I just think there's like so much exciting work being done, and you know it, it's just now trickling down into neonatology about um, pharmacogenomics, and you know what will we learn about um, which patients respond to what kind of medications? So, mm-hmm. I just think I just think we have a long way to go in in terms of of that, and so we won't have to do so much trial and error. For individual patients, obviously, yep. we'll have to keep doing trials. Oh, it's my turn, I guess. It is your turn. <laughs> I feel like we're doing questions. I forgot that it was, <laughs> that it was my turn. Um, okay. So there's this um, brief report in Acta Pediatrica, um, provider concordance regarding elements of goals of care discussions in neonatal intensive care. So this study comes to us out of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Philadelphia, um, done between January 2018 and February 2019, um, but the research team's predominantly from uh, Mount Sinai with the lead author, Catherine um, Goodman, Catherine Goodman. Um, so really what they wanted to do is if you had mixed uh, teams, like a multidisciplinary team um, participating in a goals of care discussion, um, did at the end of the discussion, did you agree on how things went, which I think is really interesting um, because I think that's something we see all the time, that we have a say myself. I'm a neonatologist. I'm a physician. I had a goals of care discussion. I think things went a certain way. And lo and behold, I may find out that not everybody feels it went the same way. So that's what they wanted to to look at. They used a survey called the Williams Instrument. It's an 82-item survey, um, and uh, it was provided to people after um, a Discussions of Care um, meeting. So they identified discussions um, by doing weekly emails sent out um, to the staff, um, social workers notifying the team about goals of care discussion, um, and then they used the questions from the survey and put things into four different domains, communication, quality of care, quality of life, and shared decision making. Um, All of this was done on a Likert scale, and they circulated the survey to as many people as possible, nurses, attending physicians, um, social workers, all involved in um, patient care within 10 days following a goals of care discussion. In general, their discussions had two or three participants, um, and when a conversation had three participants, they tried to look at all of the possible combinations um, for concordance. So overall, the scores on the Williams instrument within it within a discussion. So again, they were looking at concordance. So did everybody agree? Were moderately concordant um, with a median uh, Kendall's cor- correlation coefficient of point four, um, and most sixty five percent of the coefficients had a p value less than point oh five. The interest, the most in, interesting things about um, the study, though, I think, is actually looking at the separate items. So even when um, uh, people kind of agreed in a conversation, um, they had the same level of agreement um, about the presence or of an absence of an item. They disagreed on on certain items so even though the conversation as a whole was concordant um, they they might have disagreements about the the different items um, and so for example providers passed value judgments was an example of a statement about which there were low levels of agreement so people did not feel the same way about how that went providers were frank and honest is an example of a statement about which um, there were high levels agreement, which I guess is a good thing, depending on how you <laughs> look at it. Um, some of the other items that were uh, really had low agreement um, adequately explained hospital policies related to the child's care. And I feel like this, this is something that gets us tripped up in our own unit all of the time. I
1: don't even know what I, I was very confused as to what that meant. Even
0: so, it it means like, for example, uh, a visitor policy, a when is the touch time policy, things like that, where somebody yeah. may see somebody may say one thing and a different person says something else, and I think it's one of the main uh, stress points for families in, in in any given unit. So I'm not surprised by that.
1: Oh, I get in trouble for that so often. Yeah. I allow way too many things.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you want to do it? Yeah, sure.
1: Sure, bring bring sure, that person sure. over. Of oh, course nice. they can see the baby.
0: Um, things like recognized when parents felt intimidated by the number of providers. So we do this to families all the time. We have way too many providers in the room. So there was a low agreement about whether... People recognize those parental cues. Adequate use of aids, such as notes and diagrams. So I thought that was really valuable. Lots of our families actually would like to see some of the information in a more visual format. We talked about passing value judgments, which is always a touchy situation. Um, And then parents feel that the right decision was made regarding withdrawal. 47% agreement. Um, encouraged parents to provide mutual support and trust, 52%, provided parents with sufficient number of discussions, 53%. And then things that scored really high, um, healthcare workers were frank and honest, I told you, parents were encouraged to ask questions, um, 89%. We almost always get that right. Yeah. Do you have any questions? And they don't even know where to start asking questions, right? Um, avoided answering parents' questions, 89% agreement. Healthcare workers were polite and were respectful, 96%, um, respectively. So I thought this was interesting, um, for a number of reasons. One, uh, I think there's value to debriefing after, um, and uh, uh, family conferences, just like we would do with a code or a procedure. Um, I think these are procedures with um, definitive skills to be learned. So I think that's useful. And I think it saves us trouble in the long run. Um, the other thing I thought were by looking at these answer and question options, um, I think there are some tips in there about how to improve our our, our um, communication with families. So thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, this, this reinforced a lot of the things that I had learned from our episode with Betsy Pilon, right? I, mm. I mean, I've started to like put myself whenever I'm having a family discussion or just try to see like, how does this look from the perspective of the family? And very recently I was talking to a family and I was just approaching them and it was telling them something not meaningless, but like just, we're talking about reflux. Like their babies had a bit of reflux, nothing really crazy, but somehow more nurses showed up around the bedside Mm -hmm. at the same time Mm -hmm. and at some point I'm realizing that like now there's like seven staff members around and I I said hey like this is gonna sound like we're delivering like horrible news so I stopped and I said hey why is there so many people around here now like Mm -hmm. we didn't need and the dad made the comment saying yeah okay because I'm like I was worried like what are you guys gonna tell me (laughs) yeah and it was so funny how by just Stopping to realize that something was happening, like the the father had picked up on the volume, like uh, the like uh, the size of the team, as is mentioned in this mm-hmm. article, can be very intimidating. And unless we s- do something about it, the parents are just going to try to hold their ground, and they, they most of the time won't say anything. But so, um, I resonated with that paper very yeah, much. Yeah, and if
0: you if you feel it's like uncomfortable, like probably the parents were uncomfortable, like a few steps back, right? So. Yeah. Props for you for, for being attentive.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Betsy Pilon's interview was great. Like when, when she talks about like all the things that are happening around her and how she is hyper, hyper mm-hmm. She, mm-hmm. she hears everything because she's a parent under stress in the NICU and what the resident says what the nurse, like oof, we have to be very careful. Okay. Um, is it my turn?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So, that's how we uh, do this, that's right. back and forth. I, I wanted to, thank you, ma'am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go over this article published in Pediatrics about glycerin suppositories and enemas. So when I was a resident, our surgeons liked to use glycerin suppositories, like pediatric surgeons often do. And this paper came out in Pediatrics at the time. It was uh, 2017 that said, there's a trend toward glycerin enemas and an association with NEC. And we teased our surgeons so much because we knew it was not statistically significant. But I remember we teased them. They're like, oh, you're the reason, huh? <laughs> Staying in business, so, huh? Uh-huh. And so that meta-analysis that came out in uh, 2017, um, I remember myself as a resident. And this is published in Pediatrics. It's called Glycerin Suppositories and Enemas in Premature Infants, a meta-analysis. First author is Paul Burchard. I think that's how, and in any case, it is basically a revised meta-analysis from that Mm -hmm. same group that published that other study in in 2015, sorry, 2015. Um, So um, this is a meta-analysis where they basically looked at studies that assessed infants treated with glycerin suppositories or enemas. They had specific inclusion criteria for their study. Number one, it had to include premature infants, less than 32 weeks of gestation, and or birth weight less than 1,500 grams. Intervention uh, had to include the intervention with glycerin enemas or suppositories used prophylactically or as rescue therapy. And three, the studies had to be a randomized controlled trial. The outcomes that they were looking for was time to full enteral feed. Um, That was their primary outcome measure. And additional outcomes included mortality, necrotizing enterocolitis, rectal perforation, rectal bleeding, meconium evacuation, and jaundice. So after their search was was completed, they were able to to identify six randomized control trials And that included a total of 389 premature infants. Um, Four of these trials, four out of six, included babies less than 32 weeks. One of them, 30 to 35. And the other just mentioned premature infants uh, with a birth weight of 500 to 1250 grams. All six trials excluded neonates with congenital or gastrointestinal malformation. Three specifically excluded premature infants with hemodynamic instability or shock because of the risk, obviously, associated with that when it comes to the the gut. Um, The definition for full enteral feeding... um, varied across the studies, and some of them used 100 ml per kilo per day, 150 ml per kilo per day, 180 for a total of 24 hours, or tolerance of enteral feeds and discontinuation of TPN for more than 48 hours. Um, The transition to full enteral feeding was defined as the difference in days between the start of enteral feeding and full enteral feeding. So basically how long it took you from the point you started to give a baby some milk and the point where you actually shut off their TPN. That, that duration was called the transition to full enteral feeding. Um, across the, across uh, five of the six trials, there was no statistical difference in the, in the time to, uh, to full feeds uh, between treatment groups. When it comes to uh, mortality, the mortality rates ranged from zero to 17%. And they didn't find any statistically significant difference in mortality between infants who were administered glycerin depositories or glycerin enemas compared to control. When it came to NEC, there was no statistical difference between the incidence of NEC between the treatment groups and uh, in any of those six trials. The mid analysis demonstrated a non significant trend toward a higher incidence of NEC with glycerin suppositories. So again, the p value was 0.16, the 95% confidence interval was 0.68 to 11.2. Um however, um they mentioned that there were no apparent trends for glycerin enemas uh or overall. So do I mean I guess we're we're back um exactly where we uh, begun.
2: Mm-hmm. Um
1: <laughs> There was no significant uh, difference in the cases in the in the instance of rectal perforation and bleeding, and then when it came to meconium evacuation, they found no difference in the days to initial meconium evacuation between treatment groups. Three trials reported completion of meconium evacuation, and. Um, one of those trials reported a non-significant trend toward earlier completion of meconium evacuation when glycerins were were used. The mid-analysis itself revealed significantly earlier completion of meconium evacuation overall. Um, and then finally, when looking at um, jaundice, two studies uh, reported outcomes related to jaundice and um, there was no significant difference in the administration of glycerin suppositories versus control in the peak total serum bilirubin, which is kind of interesting because when, when shit hits the fan with bilirubin, sometimes we give glycerin enemas to full-term babies to try to stimulate the enterohepatic circulation. So it was interesting to I see. I've literally that... never done that. <laughs> what?
0: I've literally never done
1: that. You've never heard of that? No. <laughs> yeah. So so if you have like a baby that comes in for an exchange transfusion and as you're prepping for everything, I've seen um, okay, I'm going to be honest. I've done it myself too. Like you can okay. give a bit of glycerin suppository to get the babies to poop so that you can stimulate peristalsis and you can try to get, um, you can theoretically stimulate mm. a bit more enterohepatic circulation. I have no idea the if this is evidence-based. Like Maybe it, I sound like- It's
0: all the way down there. What? The poop's already down there.
1: <laughs> Listen, when when the exchange transfusion threshold is almost met- if somebody All says right, well, you sprinkle we- this magic water over the baby, I will do it. <laughs>
0: I'll do it. All right. So tell us about the bilirubin then.
1: <laughs> no. So they didn't see any difference in the, right. in the Toral serum. Bit. Um, now what was interesting. So, 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 right. So, so there was no, so the overall conclusion of the, of the mid analysis was that, um, they, they suggest that the use of glycerin suppositories and MS does not affect mortality, the transition to enteral feeding, and there's not there does not seem to be any definitive association with NEC, although they're leaving the door open saying that with more evidence, this may change. Now, they do also state very early on in their discussion that the quality of the of the evidence for the administration of the medication is predominantly low to very low, largely because of underpowered studies. Um, and risk of bias due to methodology, inadequate binding, frequent protocol violation, incomplete outcome data, possibly selective reporting, and possible publication bias. So the data isn't great, but I feel like glycerin suppositories is something that's very ubiquitous in a lot of NICUs and and especially for preterm babies. And so I don't know. Uh, what were glycerins? Yes, no? Yeah. Are you changing so what you're I, doing based on this paper? Where I
0: trained, where I trained like I ne- I don't think I ever placed an order for a glycerin suppository, not, not once. <laughs> and then, as you know, where we practiced together, everybody had it on the mar. So, yeah. And I mean, that's just my end of two. You know, I just think, I just think uh, we ha- people feel very. This is something people feel very strongly one way or another about, and I'm not sure we have any data to support one way or another.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that to me was asking more questions than giving mm-hmm. answers is like mm-hmm. the, the, the rapid completion of meconium evacuation. Is that necessary? Like, is this a good thing? I, I don't like, right. I mean, it yeah, sounds like, I, don't, I
0: mean, I think there are some babies, right. Where you're like, I mean, we either got to get stuff moving or I'm going to have to intubate this kid. Right. Because of the distension and, and the CPAP. And you're like, what's, what's, what's what, you know, what's, where's the, where does the balance fall? Uh, you know, so as usual, I think this is an individualized thing. I don't think saying never and or having it on every baby in the unit is the right is the right choice. Yeah. Either I way. think
1: for now, based on the evidence that we have out there, if you were wanting to use glycerins, mm-hmm. you would not have, it seems, strong evidence to oppose that practice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it also doesn't seem like you would be...
0: It's not broadly supported yeah. <laughs> in that <laughs> right. practice
1: either so just like when you go to the ocean swim at your own risks <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's right well, that's something else we talked to dr roderberg about are there more answers or more questions or she said both <laughs> um I wanted to talk about uh this uh paper which gosh there there has been a lot of twitter buzz about about new articles so this is this is our push that if you if you if you have hesitation about being on social media there's just so much to learn so I hope I hope this is you will heed Heed this advice to join us on Neo Twitter. Right. So um, this also is an, was an act of pediatrica um, neurodevelopmental disorders and somatic diagnoses in a national cohort of children born before 24 weeks of gestation. Um, lead author Eva Morsing, this is a study comprised of a Swedish uh, national cohort of um, 399 children born before 24 weeks of gestation between the years of 2007 and 2018. Um, all of these infants had survived at least until 40 weeks post-menstrual age, um, obviously, because we were looking at some of these long-term outcomes. Um, but in Sweden, any baby born under 30 weeks who um, survives until 40 weeks post-menstrual age are registered in the Swedish National Register for Retinopathy of Prematurity, or the SWEDROP. So um, that is a nice... Cohort to have. And then they um, wanted to look forward. So they have this uh, registry of babies less than 30 weeks, but they were interested in looking specifically at um, what are like the long term health outcomes. Uh, of babies born at 24 weeks gestation, so then they looked at the other diagnoses retrieved from the National Board of Health and Welfare's National Patient Register, um, and in addition, uh, they looked at individual medical charts of the children to validate and complete the diagnoses found in the registries. Um, of note, I thought it was important to to know what does the periviable resuscitation look like, and they do comment. So in general. Uh, They consider resuscitation at 22 weeks. It's recommended at 23 weeks. Um, And in their cohort, survival rate increased from 20% in this um, uh, low gestational age in 2013 to 2015, uh, increased to 38% between 2016 and 2018. So some of the disorders they were looking for or the long-term outcomes they were looking for, they looked at cerebral palsy um, using uh, the gross motor function classification system. Um, and then they looked at a lot of ICD-10 codes. And again, they cross-referenced um, the charts and the registers. So they made a diagnosis of intellectual di- disability based on developmental tests and estimated adaptive skills and classified using the um, IQ scores and the ICD-10 codes. Um, so again, they looked at IQ and then they classified into mild, moderate to severe. And they looked at any intellectual disability as an ICD-10 code. They looked at epilepsy. Hearing impairment was defined as dependence on hearing aids or Worse, uh, for example, deafness, visual impairment was defined as being referred to uh, a low vision clinic um, or at any age having a best corrected visual acuity um, that was uh, below the, the lower limit. The other somatic diagnoses, they looked at um, uh, failure to thrive, short stature due to endocrine disorder. Um, surgically treated inguinal hernia and gastrostomy, nephrocalcinosis, and nephritis. They looked at respiratory diagnoses of asthma and uh, childhood BPD, uh, persistent pulmonary hypertension, and vocal cord paresis. They looked at severe respiratory impairment, um, which was defined as a need for oxygen supplementation up to at least two years of age or more, and or tracheostomy and or a home ventilator during childhood, and then they looked also at referrals to uh, habitation. Ha- let me say it right, habilitation centers, <laughs> uh, which is really about the the use of therapy. Um, they had. Uh, Almost 400 babies, like I said, they plan to follow, and they did have some deaths in the cohort. So their final um, inclusion was 383. Um, And the child's age at last visit was anywhere between 2 and 13 years, which I thought was interesting um, because, again, some kids were only followed up until two years. So it's just something to note. Of the 383 infants... Go ahead.
1: I was going to ask the habilitation centers... Uh huh. I'm not familiar with that term. It,
0: it's like habilitation, uh, habilitation yeah, like,
1: services. I'm sorry.
0: It's like therapy services.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. Like
0: re- rehabilitation is where it comes from.
1: Fine. It's okay. That's okay. Fine. I just wanted to make sure it was not like a subtle difference. Um, the Swedish do things kind of neatly sometimes. And so I wanted to make sure that was not missing <laughs> some cool aspect of what they were doing. <laughs>
0: Um, that's what I found in my, my review. Cause I looked it up also. No worries. So if I, if I'm wrong, people can definitely let us know. Um, oh, they
1: will let us know. <laughs>
0: they'll let us know. So of the infants, they were born at a median age of 23.3 weeks, range of 21, uh, weeks to 20, uh, this says 23.9 weeks of gestation here in my notes. It doesn't seem like it could be right. hmm um, the median birth weight was 565 grams, a range of 340 to 874 grams. Um, and they did have two infants born in this 21 week, uh, period, 91 infants born at 22 weeks. Um, and then they did look at Uh, So of the 21 weeks, they had one male, one female, 91 infants uh, born at 22 weeks were 54% male. And the 290 infants uh, born at 23 weeks were 51% male. And in this, go ahead, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say this whole thing with the the weeks. It's like um, either you, you say 23.3, it means like a third of the week. Mm-hmm. Or you're saying 23 and three days, which is an addition like three days yes, of a week you're is right. not necessary. They
0: said 23.9 weeks, with nine, right.
1: which is like 90 percent of a week.
0: Correct. Thank you. For, thank you. That's what it was. Um, and I did want to. They did um, mention that the two infants born at 21 weeks they kind of lumped into the 22 um, week group. So you should know that. So um, basically, 75 percent of the children um, had quote unquote, any neurodevelopmental disorder. And then they went into the the different groups. So speech disorders, 52%. Intellectual disabilities, 40%. ADHD, 30%. um, Autism spectrum disorder, 24%. Visual impairment, 22%. Cerebral palsy, 17%. Epilepsy, 10%. Hearing impairment, 5%. Then they looked at them by weeks, so not surprisingly, a larger proportion of children born at 21 and 22 weeks compared to those born at 23 weeks had intellectual disability, uh, 49% versus 36%. A larger proportion were referred for um, habilitation care, 64% versus 52%. Uh, More males than um, female infants were diagnosed with intellectual disabilities, 46% versus 36%. um, And this difference was most pronounced in those born at 23 weeks. Um, When they looked at 23-week group, um, more males than females were visually impaired, 25% versus 14%. Um, And then, like I said, they looked at the failure to thrive short stature. It was diagnosed in 39% of children, more frequent in those born at 21 and 22 weeks than those born at 23 weeks, 49% versus 36%. Severe constipation was found in 29% of the total cohort, gastrostomy in 18%, which was actually better than I anticipated. For the respiratory outcomes, asthma and childhood um, BPD, 63%, pulmonary hypertension, 12%, vocal cord paresis, 13%, severe respiratory impairment, 12%. So the majority, 96% of the children, had one or more of the diagnoses selected for the study. There were a uh, total 15 children without any diagnoses. Um, 10 of these were female infants and five male infants. Um, and and Those 15 children without any diagnoses included one boy and one girl at 22 weeks. Uh, Then, again, they verified with the medical records. The medical records clearly stated that five of the 15 children were healthy. The data was sporadic for two of those 15 as they did not attend the planned follow-up And um, there were medical indications of disorders in the remaining eight children, um, especially in kind of lung problems, allergies, and neurobehavioral problems, but no um, ICD-10 codes diagnosed. They also looked at... kind of long-term interaction with care. So 193 uh, of the children, 50%, had further episodes of inpatient care after they were discharged from the NICU. The median number was two additional admissions. The median number of days in inpatient care was eight and did not differ by gestational age. So I think that this paper does just give us a little bit more information about what do those babies look like when they leave the unit. Um, And we know that parents now, instead of the question, I mean, there's still the question, right? Like, will my baby leave the unit? But, um, really, uh, defining what happens when they leave the unit.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the Swedish cohorts is always, they're always so good just Mm -hmm. because of the fact that they can follow so far out. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's kind of nice to have, um, a large cohort that's been followed well into, uh, to childhood years, you know? Um,
0: Yeah. But it's not, obviously there, but the outcomes are not great though. I mean, I mean, yeah. hmm? Go ahead.
1: No, I was saying the outcomes were not fantastic either. So it's, it's not like it's right. It's, it's good data to have and to be able to present to parents, but definitely is highlighting and underscoring the work that needs to be done.
0: Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure it changes my counseling, but it gives maybe a little more granularity to what, to what life uh, potentially looks like obviously the the medical system is different um, so you know I, I think i think that matters potentially um, especially with the social support I think, I think, place
1: yeah i think it does affect my counseling a little bit because you do see especially with a lot of out out uh, outpatient neurodevelopmental follow up data that children have this amazing ability to to catch up really well and Mm -hmm. sometimes you can see that uh the impairments whatever whatever they are they tend to get better as as you keep Mm -hmm. moving forward and forward like you get to like two years it's not so great a
0: study like that yeah
1: right and here it's like it's it's not it's not amazing (laughs) so we have to uh it's uh it may be highlighting this this very vulnerable population that is Mm -hmm. that is not Mm -hmm. managing as well to catch up on their, on their impairments as well as older gestations. So yeah, more work to be done for us, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think it begs the question to, you know, how do we, what's the best way to really transition transition those babies to their new medical homes? Is that even something we're, you know, doing? Um, how do we prepare parents uh, for the things that cause readmissions so we can minimize readmissions? I mean, that's that's ripe for work that needs to be done.
1: Okay. I have two more papers. We're running out of time. Mm
0: -hmm. We're running out of time.
1: (laughs) I have two more papers. I have to talk about these papers, Mm -hmm. though. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is a paper that was published in Pediatrics, and it's titled Predictive Ability Mm -hmm. of 10-Minute AVGAR Scores for Mortality and Neurodevelopmental Mm -hmm. Disability. The first author is Vivek Shukla, and there's a bunch of extremely, extremely famous neonatologists on this paper, uh, most notably Dr. Susan Hines, Dr. Rosemary Higgins, Dr. Abbott Laptuk, Dr. Sita Shankaran, and uh, none other than our friends as a trailing author, Dr. Wally Carlo. So in the um, introduction, um, they do mention how the APGAR score is universally accepted as a uh, measure of assessment of a newborn's. Cardiorespiratory and neuro, 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 neurologic status. And we know that lower 10 APGAR sc- minute, minute Abgar scores are associated with increased risk of adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes. Um, we also know that the 10 minute Abgar score is an integral part of the assessment used for the initiation of uh, therapeutic hypothermia in cases of infants affected by hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: However, um we we also know from uh some studies that were quoted in the background that many of the babies who have low 10-minute Apgar score tend to survive and tend to do uh surprisingly okay for such mm-hmm. a bleak uh status at that moment in time. And um the two they're mentioning the 2015 uh, American Heart Association and the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, and how their recommendations at the time was that if you had an Abgar of zero after 10 minutes of resuscitation, it was considered um, reasonable to reevaluate whether you should continue resuscitative effort, and that this. This stance was adjusted in 2020, mm-hmm. um, where instead of using the ABGAR score of zero, um, maybe they suggested continuing resuscitative efforts for about 20 minutes. Um, and even then, the uh, evidence is considered to be weak uh, with very low certainty. So the goal of the paper was to take advantage of the um optimizing cooling trial, right? And so this was a trial that was published, I think, in 2017. And this was a, a a trial that attempted to look at the depth and the duration of cooling on death or disability at age 18 months among neonates with uh, HIE. And they had 364 infants uh, in that trial. And w- we're not really going to go over uh, this trial right now. I mean, it's been published for a while. I think the outcomes are known. The trial was stopped early just because the effect of increased depth or duration of cooling did not make much of a difference. But what they thought was that this population presented an interesting group that was quite large to assess the predictive performance of the ABGAR score for death or moderate disability at 18 to 22 months of age. And so they tested this hypothesis that the ABGAR score at 10 minutes is independently predictive for death or moderate or severe disability. So um, as we've said, they took the patients from the optimizing cooling trial. And for the sake of, of completion, the inclusion criteria were that the babies had to be uh, 36 weeks or more. They had to be less than six mm-hmm. hours after birth. They had to fulfill both biochemical and clinical criteria for the diagnosis of moderate or severe HIE. Biochemical uh, criteria included a first gas. Uh, with a pH of 7.0 or less, or a base deficit of 16 or more millimole per liter. If the pH was a bit higher, um, between 7.01 and 7.15, a base deficit between 10 and 15.9, or a blood gas was not available, there were additional criteria, mm-hmm. which included like a, a, a clear perinatal event, a 10-minute APGAR score of 5 or less, or uh, needing mechanical ventilation mm-hmm. for at least 10 minutes. The primary outcome was the composite outcome of death or moderate or severe uh, disability at 18 to 22 months of age. Um, Follow-up was completed in 95% of the infants enrolled in the trial. The... The neurodevelopmental impairment was defined using the Belly three, very much uh, neonatal research network style, you know, and so so not. I don't think there was any 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 holes or uh, anything surprising in that. The one thing that was interesting from a statistical standpoint is that they performed this classification and regression tree analyses, um, and basically what they did was that uh, to determine a Cut points for ABGAR scores and identify combination of predictive vari- variables uh, that were most predictive of the composite outcome, so based on the different 10 minute abgar score, they wanted to see what level was going to predict uh, the composite the primary outcome and then they added more clinical variables to that analysis to see if there was a combination that was the most predictive uh, of the of the desired outcome. Um, Okay, so let's let's get into um, the results. And um, so a um, total of three hundred and fifty four infants had data available on survival. And among these three hundred and fifty four infant, three hundred and forty seven had eighteen to twenty two months outcome. Um, of those babies who did complete follow-up to 22, to 18 to 22 months, 307 had documented 10-minute APGAR score. Um, there were 26 infants with an APGAR score of zero at 10 minutes. Uh, the median 10-minute APGAR score were significantly lower in the infants with the composite outcome of death or moderate or severe uh, impairment, or disability, I'm sorry. Um, In addition, uh, several variables uh, available during resuscitation were found to be associated with the outcome by bivariate analysis, and uh, we are going to talk about that. So let's talk about the 10-minute APGAR score. Uh, A 10-minute APGAR score of zero was independently predictive of death or moderate-slash-severe disability. The adjusted risk, uh, relative risk was 1.72, 95% confidence interval was 1.11, to 2.68, the p-value was 0.016. However, the AUC was low, um, and that was about 0.56. Half of the infants with a 10-minute abgar score of zero survived. So that, that was pretty impressive. So 13 out of 26 infants with an abgar score of zero survived. And even more impressive was of the survivors with a 10-minute Apgar score of zero. had no disability, 16% had only mild disability, 38% had moderate or severe disability. Even more interesting, there was no significant interaction between hypothermia treatment and 10-minute APGAR scores for death and or moderate or severe disability. Um, When they did the CART analysis, this uh, regression, actually, you know what? Let me go first into figure one. So you should all look at figure one because it's a bar graph that basically has on the X axis, the 10 minute APGAR scores, and you have zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven or more. And then you have in these bars, uh, different colors based on the babies who either passed away, had moderate or severe disability, mild disability, or no disability. And it's quite impressive to see that uh, the survival rates for these babies who uh, have very low 10-minute abgars is extremely high, um, and so that's 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 already something quite interesting. So going back to the to the CART analysis, um, the CART analysis-based prediction model to predict the risk of death or moderate or severe disability identified that uh, it was a 10-minute abgar score of less than two and uh, no maternal hypertension as the most predictive variable. Uh, the AUC of the 10-minute model to predict the risk of death or moderate or severe disability was improved to 0.66 compared to with the AUC of the 10-minute APGAR score alone of 0.56. And uh, the prediction model to predict the risk of death Identified the 10 minute Abgar score of less than two and a cord blood pH of less than 6.9 as the most predictive variables. So, I guess what was the most striking thing to me, obviously, was that the majority, and they discussed that, and in, in, in the, they talk about that in the discussion, is that the majority of surviving infants with a 10-minute APGAR score of zero did not have moderate or severe disability at 18 or 22 months of age, indicating that prediction of the outcome at 10 minutes may be um, very much too early. And, and God knows that we rely on that. Um, when, when things are unfolding. So I think this paper was, was very, very interesting. I'm curious, what were were your thoughts, Daphna?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it supports, it supports the, the change to, you know, to saying, you know, 20 minutes um, is a reasonable
1: time. And I think the APGAR score is useful, but it's, I think we're trying to overfit Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff in the APGAR score, trying to make it do so many different things when in truth, It's not really meant to be really like this. Yeah, not what it this one for. score, right. yeah, subjectively being given by a provider at birth, and then you should be able to tell the whole kid's life story up until three years of age. I think that may be a bit too. Yeah, uh, that's too like highly. when I, ha- I when we
0: you know we still do some newborn coverage, and the parents say, "Well, just what were the Apgars?" And I was like, "I have literally no idea. You're you're here in the nursery, so I didn't look <laughs> at the app So, but I can find out for you." what the efforts were. So, or, or the opposite is true. You know, you're having a real, real resuscitative effort and someone at five minutes and 10 minutes. And as you're wheeling the isolate out is begging you for the Apgars, And you're like, I, I'm going to have to get back to you. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna have to think about that for a little bit. So yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't admit the baby till I tell you the Apgars, but I will get back to you. <laughs> so... So it's also an interesting discussion about studying um, research around APGARs because so many times you have to go back and assign the APGARs. So there is a yeah. recall bias with that, too. Um. Anyways, we're really going over, but we said last time that we would at least um, touch on um, – uh this uh QI paper in pediatrics improving time to independent oral feeding to expedite hospital discharge in preterm infants um lead author um Samuel uh Gentle um the anchoring author is Ariel Salas um and we had Dr. Salas on the podcast as well um so this is coming to well, us from
1: you Well we we spoke to him his episode is scheduled for release Oh I mean, so... that's
0: right <laughs> You I, don't know you like... guys don't know that we have
1: We spoke. We've had a discussion with him. Yeah, it's scheduled for release. It's just not there yet. Don't start scrolling like maniacs and saying, "Where is that art? Where is that?" It's a
0: really good episode. So, uh, you guys, that'll give you something for you guys to look forward to. Mm -hmm. Um, So, this is coming to us from um, UAB uh, Birmingham, and their real goal was uh, to reduce the the postmenstrual age at discharge, and uh, their Uh, target intervention was earlier feeding at younger gestational age. So before their project initiation, the average postmenstrual age at at discharge was 38.8 weeks in infants born Mm -hmm. um, at a gestational age between 25 and 0 and 32 and 6 weeks. In infants born between 25 and 0 and 32 and 6 weeks, um, again, their objectives were to increase the proportion of preterm infants initiated on oral feedings before 33 weeks, um, to implement Q-based feeding, and to increase the frequency of oral feeding attempts in infants who um, were not uh, having independent oral feeding by 36 weeks postmenstrual age. So those really were their three PDSA cycles. Um And the overall aim was to reduce the gestational age at discharge by one week with a balancing measure of hospital readmission within two weeks of discharge. They included inborn infants born between 25 and zero, like I said, to 32 and six, and they excluded babies um, born less than 25 weeks given the high rates of BPD and the fact that they would have ongoing, likely have ongoing respiratory needs at 36 weeks. Um. Because their thresholds for feeding on respiratory support uh, were four liters of mm-hmm. high flow. And obviously that's an ongoing threshold of discussion uh, worldwide, I think. Um, so uh, to tell you a little bit about each cycle. So the first was really identifying infants, um, approaching the 32 uh, and zero week mark so that they could um, uh, try to initiate feeds before 33 weeks. So they held these oral feeding um, huddles um, to decide which babies were kind of up for that evaluation. That was our first cycle. The second cycle, like I said, use Q-based feeding. And if you're not familiar with Q-based feeding, that's really um, each time you look at the infant, you assess for signs of feeding readiness, um, things uh, like uh, rooting, flexion in the arms and legs, awake status, sucking on a pacifier hands. Um, and that's really uh, looking at each baby, each opportunity, and saying, "Does this baby look ready to eat?" I love and that. That is, and that is not the case. I think everywhere. So, no it's
1: constant reassessment.
0: Work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then the third PDSA cycle was if the baby was at 36 weeks at that point, um, they would transition from this Q-based feeding to uh, to quote unquote practitioner driven feeding where they were provided an attempt to feed um, with every touch time. Um, infants were progressed to this feeding strategy if orally fed for at least three weeks with greater than 50% of daily feedings attempted by mouth. So they still kind of had this Q-based feeding, but if you were meeting a certain threshold, then they offered you food every time. Uh, The other thing they did, which wasn't exactly uh, its own PDSA cycle, was removing the NG tube after 120 mLs per kilo per day by mouth. And that was in the third Uh, PDSA cycle. Um, So the process measures were oral uh, feeding initiation by 33 weeks, bedside uh, by use of oral feeding logs. Um, They looked at the day of oral feeding initiation defined as the first day when an infant was fed either by nipple or at the breast, Um, which I thought that was also very cool is that they were pushing to have, uh, you know, breastfeeding count um, as the first early feed. Um, the other thing they do, which was not necessarily PDSA cycle, but I think super important, is that they um, provided their staff with weekly compliance rates. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with how well our staff responds to our QI projects. They had a total of 614 infants between 25 and 32 weeks of gestation. The average gestational age across the three PDSA cycles was about 30 to 31 weeks, to differ um, significantly. Um, The oral feeding baseline um, by postmenstrual week attempts were 6% at 32 weeks, 50% at 33 weeks, 88% at 34 weeks, 90% at 35 weeks, and um, 100% of babies had at least, they were at least attempting to feed at 36 weeks. And so they, after their first PDSA cycle, um, they were able to improve that 33-week baseline, 33 weeks and less from 47% to 80% after the first PDSA cycle, which again was just huddles looking at which babies were falling within um, those gestational ages. And after that cycle, they achieved a 90% Q-based assessments, um, and they were able to decrease gestational age at discharge from 38%. to 37.7 weeks um, with eight points below the mean on the run chart by targeting feeding initiation before 33 weeks. So anybody who was recently studying for the boards is very familiar with with run charts um, and they're an important part of um, QI research. So they made a lot of drastic um, difference really with their first PDSA cycle, which was just identifying which babies were up and making sure that they got that evaluation. Um, But by their third PDSA cycle, one of the major changes they found was reducing this, quote-unquote, extreme length of stay. Um, So babies who were really outliers on length of stay, um, they decreased um, by implementing that practitioner-driven feeding at 36 weeks. The other thing they looked at was what were their terminal barriers to discharge um, and... uh, Before they got to the third PDSA cycle, the terminal barrier to discharge in 56.3% of hospitalizations was feeding, and that decreased to 33.7% after uh, PDSA cycle three. And then um, apnea was probably the next most common barrier to discharge, and apnea resolution became the predominant terminal barrier to discharge during PDSA cycle two. Um, so they basically changed what discharge looks like in their unit, um, even even after the first PDSA cycle. Um, so they have their run charts there. I think it's um, interesting to look at. I think everybody has an ongoing debate about when they're comfortable um, starting feeds um, and with what respiratory support. But um, I think this highlights the fact that we should at least be having the discussion and preparing staff and families for feeding readiness. And I love any time we can talk about Q-based feeding. But now it's your turn to tell me what you think. Yeah, no, I think
1: think to me the takeaways are they were able to reduce time to discharge, number one, Mm -hmm. which means they were able to get these babies to feed independently sooner. And Mm -hmm. the crux of their intervention was bring all the involved parties together, Mm -hmm. do daily reassessment every day is a is a new day for trying and then have this balance between q based and provider based feeding i think that was very very smart uh so i really liked i really liked it because it's it's a it's not it's a very well done qi if you are interested in doing qi i think it's important to read up on qis that were well done and well conducted that's one of them and how a little bit of tweaking, right? I mean, all the, like they didn't come up with something new and revolutionary, but they took all the ingredients that we all have mm-hmm. and just put them together in a very nice blend to get the outcome that they needed. So that was cool. Yeah. Okay. Right. I have one. You have one what? more
0: paper. That's all. we one have. One more. Have and
1: then paper, we go. So, yeah. This was recommended to us by one of our audience member. It's called Bifidobacterium longum subspecies infantis EVC001 administration is associated with a significant reduction in the incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis in very low birth weight infants. First author, Joseph Tobias. I have to say that um, this basically is a is a study looking at the probiotics um, in, in vivo. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: is it e-vivo or in vivo? I forgot.
0: No, I think it's e-vivo.
1: e-vivo, right? And and I know that we are a podcast sponsored by um, by... Reckitt and Me Johnson, but um, the person who recommended the paper to us said they had nothing to do with the trial or with the company, and we are not been asked to review this paper by our sponsors. But I thought it was a very interesting paper nonetheless. So the the goal of the study was to evaluate the impact of this supplementation with Evivo probiotic. I'm going to call it Evivo because I'm not going to call it like B-Infantis, C-001 Mm -hmm. the the whole time through, on the rates of neck in at-risk preterm infant. So this was a non-concurrent retrospective cohort design. So if you've taken the board, you know exactly what that means. Okay. Um, and it was used to compare clinical outcomes in very low birth weight infants who either received the probiotic or who did not. Uh, it is for you're right. I just see it. I wrote it down there. <laughs> okay. um, the eligibility criteria was that babies had to be weighing less than 1500 grams at birth. They had to have received full resuscitation. They had to have survived for at least the first three days of life. They were fed a human milk-based diet consisting of either mother's milk, donor milk, or a combination thereof. And they were fed according to the institutional guidelines incorporating the best practices for NEC prevention, including human milk-based diet, an initial period of trophic feeding, and gradual feeding advancement. They, they re, this was a study that was done um, in uh, the Department of Neonatology at Oregon Um uh, um in at oregon clinical and translational research institute so um they excluded babies who uh, underwent palliative care unsuccessful resuscitation or who died before day of life four so it's important to go over their feeding protocol i think everybody's going to be interested in that so each cohort was fed human milk based diet of mother's milk donor milk or both Uh, there's an initial period of trophic feed, daily events thereafter to a goal of 150 to 160 ml per kilo per day. Donor milk feeding was continued until at least 34 weeks PMA for a minimum of five days in infants born at 34 weeks or more, after which donor milk was replaced with bovine milk based formula if the mother's milk was not available. A bovine milk based human milk fortifier, in this case, they were using the Similac HMF, was used to meet the nutrient and energy needs of the very low birth weight infants until September 2017. So in their their original historical cohort, they were fortifying the milk with um, a bovine fortifier. And then After 2017, they switched to Prolacta, which is human milk-based fortification. Mm -hmm. So there's like nine months in their control sample that actually were switched from bovine to Prolacta. And then all the people, all the the, the patients who were exposed to Evivo uh, probiotic were fortified with Prolacta. The use of bovine milk-based fortification was continued for infants weighing more than 1,000 grams, but less than 1,500 grams at birth. But as of March 2020, they switched that to uh, birth weight less than 1,250 so uh, the administration of the probiotic uh, they received 8 billion colony forming units of activated b infantis evc001 suspended in 0.5 milliliters of medium chain triglyceride oil mct oil daily via gastric tube before a morning feed Um, from june 2018 to 2019 The eVivo administration was initiated at feeding volume of 80 to 100. And in August 2019, they switched the protocol to begin it on the day of trophic feed. So initially, they were waiting almost like when you taper off the lipids, but now Mm -hmm. they, they, they were giving it really right away. The primary outcome was a diagnosis of neck determined using the Bell staging criteria, uh, cases of spontaneous intestinal perforation were excluded. Spontaneous intestinal perforation was defined as the as a GI perf without signs of neck, and uh, the diagnosis of neck was confirmed by an independent review of each case by at least two neonatologists and one pediatric surgeon. Secondary outcomes included medical neck, separate, surgical neck, separate, uh, associated neck-associated mortality, and day of life at the diagnosis of neck. So they were able to enroll... Uh, to include four hundred and eighty-three infants who met their inclusion criteria, um, and three hundred and one infants who um, uh, three hundred and one infants who were not exposed to the to the probiotic, and one hundred and eighty-two infants who were exposed to the e-vivo probiotics. There's no significant differences in the measured covariates between the two cohort, except for sex and antenatal steroid administration. The mean gestational age at birth for both cohort was 28 weeks and a mean birth weight of 1,000 grams and 1,045 grams for the, um, for the placebo, and then 1,048 grams for the e-vivo group. Regarding the primary outcome, they had 33 cases of NEC, and what they did was they looked at the control group and they said, when we switched from the Similac fortifier mm-hmm. to the Prolacta fortifier, was there any differences in NEC? And they did see a small reduction from like 20% to 16.7%, but that was not really statistically significant. So they felt it was okay for them to continue to analyze this control group mm-hmm. as one single group, even though they had some heterogeneity in terms of the fortifier that they received. Um, so when the, the the log binomial models demonstrated that infants with um, no who didn't receive the probiotic had a seventy three percent higher cumulative incidence of NEC compared with infants in the probiotic group after adjusting for differences in sex, birth weight, gestational age, and mode of delivery. I encourage you to review um, numbers, because it's quite impressive because Mm -hmm. they basically looked at all the very low birth weight infants and the the rates of neck went down from 11% to 2.7%. And when they looked at less than a thousand gram, it went down from 19.2% to 5.3%. The number needed to treat for the VLBWs was 13. And for ELBWs, it was eight. Um, is there anything else that I wanted to tell you? Subgroup analysis was carried out to determine the effect um, of the Evivo administration on ELBW infant and those with a birth weight of 1,000 to 1,500 grams, uh, and it demonstrated a statistically significant difference in the neck incidence between cohort with an adjusted relative risk of 0.28 in ELBW infants. Um, In the babies who did develop neck, they didn't find a really significant difference in the incidence of medical versus surgical neck, um, And then we talked about the difference in the LBW. So very interesting um, mm-hmm. about this very selective probiotic. Um, and this evivo probiotic is consisting of this bifidobacterium lungum, subspecies infantis, so B. infantis. And it's they describe it as a mutualist colonizer of the human gut uh, worldwide and that it encodes for the complete gene cluster needed to metabolize the full range of prebiotic m- human milk oligosaccharides, complex sugars in human milk that are otherwise indigestible by the infant. And so that's why they're making the case that this probiotic is really well designed for our preterm population. Um, and they're, they're quoting a... Um, um some another study in the introduction which looked at the supplementation of uh, evivo to human milk in preterm infants in a neonatal intensive care unit and basically they had done safety and uh, making sure that the 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 that the the probiotic was well tolerated and uh, that it colonized the mic the intestinal microbiota and that uh, it had some positive effect on neck which was one of the big issues in this study obviously it's retrospective so there's a few holes Mm -hmm. but there's also not much analysis of the stool to look at the effect really on the microbiome Mm -hmm. when this was given but they're using that that original paper to say that's that's already been pretty much discussed so yeah thoughts 2.7 percent rates of neck
0: yeah i mean aren't we all looking for something to reduce (laughs) neck and it's just it's hard because there's been you know a long, long history of, of, of papers looking at, at probiotics. So I'm just happy that we're still looking that we're doing more um, studies on it for sure. I think the combinations, right. We always had to decide like, is this applicable to my population? So I think we have to look specifically at, like the combinations of things that we're giving. So it was really important that they talked about um, what their fortification was and can you mix the two groups? I don't know. I I don't know what to say about that. Um, but I, I think I think we're I think you have to look at what, what it is that you give your you know, I think we have to look at everything we give our babies and say, is it the same thing as they what they give their babies instead of just looking at products individually? I think that's gonna be the long term problem.
1: I have to admit this paper made me hopeful because I do feel like the time for probiotics is now. And um, and these are pretty striking differences. I mean, we started, and th- again, we have no, no, we're not being paid to say this, but like we started using vivo in our, in our, in our unit as well. Um, yeah. I think, I think this is, I think this is, this is something that, that's coming. Um, and we're going to have, we're going to ask Abdul Razak, who we're going to have on the podcast as well, because I loved his drama editorial on on the use of probiotics so anyway all right we're way over time i, I feel like
0: way over time we always were over time
1: but that was fun i feel like <laughs> so oh, happy we missed to be back. journal club so yeah i missed journal club and there's even more papers coming up next week so so stay tuned yeah we have a lot definitely list. this was fun
0: bye everybody
1: take care guys bye thank you for listening to this week's episode of the incubator if you liked this episode please leave us a review on apple podcast or the apple podcast website you can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the Podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at podcast Personally, I am on Twitter at dr NikU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr Daphna Md. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.